everyone, and welcome to Secondhand Stories, where we invite you to slow down and listen up. I'm your host, Jim Zabo. So far, we've been giving you two stories per episode, but in honor of our third episode, today we're going to bring you three fantastic stories. It wasn't really intentional, just kind of worked out that way, but I'm really excited about all of them. Very different stories, all relating a bit to the unknown. And stick around for the last one. I think you'll regret it if you don't, because it's really good. Our first story today deals with some of the unknown minutiae in our day-to-day lives and the curiosity it inspires. It's called Old Man in the Coffee Shop, Writing in His Journal, I Forget, written by Pete Stavros, who earned a BA in English from Duke University and studied creative writing on a graduate level at Emerson College and Harvard University. His work has appeared in Hippocampus Magazine, Fiction Southeast, Juked, and Literary Orphans, among others. He lives in Louisville, Kentucky with his wife. More can be found at www.peterjstavros.pressfolios.com. He was there like he was always there. Every morning when I came in for my coffee, black sugar and a muffin, apple crisp if they had it, and if not, banana, never bran, and just to be up and out, out of the house, after Elizabeth, several months now, give or take, as I was losing track of the days and maybe that was a good thing, but I still wasn't who I used to be, I could tell. There he was, at the same table. And how early did he have to show up for that prime real estate at this prime time? Apart from the maddening crowd of nine-to-fivers and wannabe hipsters and middle managers making last-minute revisions to presentations and sales pitches and groggy new parents who had been up all night with colicky babies and two cool teenagers on their way to school and hangers-on and ne'er-do-wells with nothing better to do and nowhere to go and everyone else caught up in the coordinated chaos, all clamoring for their daily fix. He was there, always at the same table, off to the side and in the middle, against the window sequestered from the line that snaked past the counter, sometimes extending out the door, which caused a real cluster, more than usual. I was lucky if I managed to nap a rickety stool beside the railing, or maybe squeeze into one of those sunken couches in the corner next to some liberal arts major, hunched over a battered laptop with a peeling Fugazi sticker, taking advantage of the free Wi-Fi to check emails or job boards or Craigslist. Me in my dark business suit and black wingtips, Balancing my coffee and muffin as I tried to read the paper, a living, breathing anachronism for reading the paper rather than scrolling through the headlines on an iPhone, feeling tragically dull and inapt. It was still better than being alone at home. I spent too much time alone at home as it was after Elizabeth, after she left, but it was the morning that seemed the worst, the loneliest, the most empty, the least promising, without the satisfying ruckus I had grown accustomed to during the seven years we were together. Seven years in all, of Elizabeth upstairs, scrambling to ready for work as she had such difficulty starting herself, while I sat in my easy chair in front of the TV, reading the paper and drinking my coffee from that oversized mug Elizabeth had brought back from one of her business trips. The trip to Seattle with her boss, who I thought was just her boss, and stupid me for thinking that once I realized, and then it was too late, but how was I to know? Elizabeth giggled whenever she barreled downstairs, harried and hurried, searching for something she needed in her preparation process, and caught me sipping from that gargantuan, exaggerated bowl of a coffee mug that was supposed to be a joke because she knew how much I loved my coffee, but I used it anyway because I liked it. She would dart up to the bathroom, and I would hear the hairdryer zoom on with a flicker of the lights, 
and the random crash or thud of a brush or a bottle or whatnot into the sink or onto the white porcelain tiled floor. Elizabeth muttering, God damn it, as she trampled and stomped around, every sound amplified in the creepy old Cape Cod that seemed so alive then, the most alive then, during those mornings with Elizabeth, so alive then that it now seemed impossibly quiet and stifling and suffocating, and I could not stand to be there, especially in the morning, which was why I got up and dressed as quickly as I could, and out, and away, to this little coffee shop down the street, where I always saw him, at the same table, off to the side and in the middle, against the window, for as long as I had been coming in, several months, something like that. I didn't know him, some old man, and I didn't try to get to know him, figured why bother, and maybe he wouldn't want to get to know me either, but I was intrigued by him, something about him. His poise in the midst of the frenetic atmosphere, people shouting out their names and their coffee orders, playing musical chairs with the lack of seating. He remained reticent in the wake of that commotion, his thinning white hair slicked perfectly straight back over his head, not a strand out of place, his beard full but not unkempt, trimmed enough to show he cared, yet not overly so, like the baristas who looked as if they had had their beard sprayed on at some trendy beard salon, a button-down shirt and pleated pants. And as the seasons changed, summer into fall, a flannel jacket in a checkerboard pattern of arbor green and deep mahogany draped over the back of his chair. In front of him were a styrofoam cup of coffee, without his name scribbled on it in black sharpie like the rest of us. I had checked, for some clue, as if his first name would reveal anything in a small plate with scattered crumbs of what he had eaten, probably a scone because he seemed like a scone person, perhaps pumpkin in October, lemon otherwise. It was the old man I more and more found myself drawn to in this manic coffee shop during the morning rush, for his stillness, his quiet, his obvious indifference to the chaos that surrounded him. I could not turn away, no matter where I sat. He was there, always there, at the same table, with the same setup, and writing, constantly writing in this worn, brown, leather-bound journal, never looking up, never looking around, no matter what, no matter the shouting of people's names and coffee orders and sundry other distractions, the clanking of silverware, or the rearranging of tables and chairs, or the whistling of the steamer that heated the milk into a frothy topping. He kept singularly centered on his writing, only pausing to take a sip of coffee, or to adjust his wire-rimmed glasses, or to maybe scratch behind his ear or rub a hand over his face, his mouth, his chin, every so often changing out pens after the ink had run dry in the one he was using. But that was it, and nothing more, and other than that, all he did was sit there by himself and write. I wasn't sure how long he stayed. Could have been all day until the last coffee bean was ground and brewed and the milk steamer shut down for the evening and all the chairs upturned onto all the tables. Or it could have been five minutes after me. I always had to leave before him, to get to my job, to maintain my routine, to not squander my caffeine high. He was off to the office to sell my time in six-minute increments, reviewing documents, drafting pleadings, placating impatient clients, anything it took to hold my tenuous place on the partnership track all while trying not to think of Elizabeth. The busier I was, the easier it was to stay focused, struggling to free myself from this rut and to move on, to become myself again because I wasn't myself anymore and I could tell, and so could others. My friends urged me to start dating, 
My therapist said I needed a hobby. My mom wanted me to return to church, but I no longer believed in that. Didn't see how I could after this and everything else. So I just plodded along. Despite my efforts, the idle moments did seep in. Those moments when my mind wandered, when my mind would not permit me to release what I knew I needed to release. Yet instead of tumbling into the typical melancholy, grieving the loss of my romanticized vision of Elizabeth, blaming me, hating me, I had begun to think about the old man in the coffee shop, writing in his journal, turning to him intermittently throughout the day, particularly during those instances when my emotions flipped like a switch at some subconscious cue, a sort of involuntary defense mechanism. My obsession swiftly blossomed. My speculation ran rampant, my head crammed full with these far-fetched scenarios. Who was he, and what was he writing? It became this grand mystery to me, one I had to solve. Maybe he was a famous author, drafting the great American novel, and I'd be able to tell everyone that I was there basking in his creative process. Or he could have been a brilliant mathematician, or physicist, or some kind of scientist, a genius, devising equations and calculations and hypotheses to solve the mysteries of the universe, to explain creation, how it was we were here, our purpose, why shit happened. What if he was a spy, hiding in plain sight, casing out the place? taking copious notes on everyone who drifted through. But what could he be spying on, and for whom, and why this coffee shop? I couldn't sleep, still, but not because I was pining for Elizabeth. I was instead awash with conjecture and supposition, tossing and turning as I envisaged various plots playing out. I rose eager to dash to the coffee shop, not so much as it had been to flee my house, but to observe the old man, to study him tuned out to the world, detached from everything except whatever it was he was meticulously putting down on the pages of his journal. What was so important for him to write about, day in and day out? As I persisted with this idée fixe, the heaviness that had weighed upon me lifted, and the foreboding and dread vanished. I was excited. I was engaged. I was enthused about something, anything. Even after I departed the coffee shop, confined to my tiny desk in my small office, with a singular sliver of opaque window and wilted potted plant of unknown origin, my spirits remained high, my resilience unbroken, the old man in his journal having pulled me from the depths of my despair. I could think only of him, ruminating on what the novel was about, what the hypothesis solved, who had sent him to spy. This compulsion squeezed out my other compulsions. The ghost of Elizabeth exercised, enabled me to open to new people and to new opportunities. I wondered if I needed the coffee shop at all anymore, but could not give it up, not entirely, not until I learned what the old man was writing. I felt I owed it to myself, that I deserved it. One morning, like the other mornings, or I thought, my opportunity arose. The old man stood from his table and simply walked off, disappearing down a narrow corridor toward the back. Just like that, he was gone. I was in disbelief, a bit panicked. What was happening? He had up and left his table, the same table, and his journal, the worn brown leather-bound journal, unguarded and unattended. I glanced around, confused, to see if anyone else had noticed. Surely someone else had noticed. Surely someone else cared, but no one, only me. My pulse quickened, 
and a nervous energy flickered from my core to the tips of my fingers and toes. I realized my moment had arrived. I finally had my chance. Yet, I could not move, not the slightest shifting of position. I was affixed to the rickety stool, dense against the railing, forced to contemplate if I really wanted to do this. Did I really want to find out? Was it that important to me? Was it something I needed to know? I questioned if it would be better not to know, to continue to leave it to my imagination, my overactive, crazed imagination. I caught a glimpse of the antique wall clock behind the bustling counter, the second hand racing. I was painfully aware, with a tightness in my chest, a lump in my throat, that if I was going to do something, I had better do it. I leaned sideways, stared at the darkened corridor. No sign of life. I decided I would do this. I forced myself from the stool, took my coffee cup and empty plate, hands wobbly, and headed to the trash station, overflowing can and dirty dish bin, feigning to casually pass by the old man's table, cautiously, carefully, stiff-legged and tense, convinced that all eyes were on me, people shouting out their names and coffee orders over the din of steaming milk. As I neared the table, my heart beating in my temples, I noticed that the journal was lying face up and open, the pen wedged into the spine. There was no turning back. I bent in to read what was there, to see what the old man had been writing all this time. I strained to focus, stunned by what I saw, nothing I had expected, for all my musings and reflections and deliberations, daydreaming my afternoons away, sleepless nights, consumed by the reverie. There it was, just one phrase, the same phrase, over and over and over, in perfect, precise penmanship. Letters straight, crisp, bold, uniform. A single statement duplicated end to end on every line, and as a sudden boldness overtook me, I flipped through the journal, on each page, all of the pages, front and back, filling in every empty space. It was just one phrase. Jesus loves you. If I don't write it down, I forget. I pivoted, startled, my cup and plate escaping my grip and dropping with a smack and a clatter. Before me was the old man, his face more weathered than I saw from afar. Deep lines dug in, weary and worn, bags under his eyes, his eyes a pale blue, dimmed by a certain sadness, I could tell, one I recognized. I heard myself gasp, caught tiny flickering stars in my periphery, my knees buckled. I knew, feared, that I fully deserved it as the old man lit into me. Indeed, caught in the act like that I expected it, half flinching in anticipation of what was undoubtedly to follow. But he just shrugged, sheepishly, and repeated, slower, softer, resigned. I forget. I never returned to the coffee shop after that after apologizing profusely to the old man, a rambling, stuttering, nonsensical apology about how I had mistaken his journal for something, or I was looking for something, or I had the wrong table, something, just something that sounded absurd as I said it, but I had to say something, then hustling off, leaving behind my mess, on the floor, broken ceramic and a puddle of black coffee, for one of the spray-beard baristas who was reluctantly approaching with a mop, surging through the line and stumbling out onto the sidewalk, tripping over my feet, scurrying, scampering, straight ahead and gone. I couldn't return. How could I? How could I face the old man, or worse, 
What if he was no longer there? What if my actions, my stupid, selfish actions, had driven him off? After a while, I found another coffee shop, several blocks away, just as crowded, just as hectic, but it was not the same. The months passed, and the seasons changed, and life went on, the way it always did, the way it always had. In due course, I became who I used to be, before Elizabeth, as I carried with me those words the old man wrote unceasingly in his journal, words I needed even when I thought I didn't, when I had stopped trusting in them, words I would carry with me through every other inevitable rut and misstep and catastrophe and calamity, through all the bad and the good, three simple words, in that remembrance of how I rediscovered them, I vowed to carry with me evermore. Our second story today deals with some unknown creatures in our world and gives us some insight into what they're all about. Lilith the Bigfoot is a story that combines two of author Laura Copan's favorite things, Bigfoot and making fun of people. Lilith is a figure from Jewish mythology. She was Adam's first wife and was not as submissive as God or Adam would have liked. Laura got the idea for this story from listening to an interview with a Bigfoot on a YouTube channel called Channeling Eric. That's E-R-I-K. Laura Copan graduated with a BA in creative writing from Virginia Tech in May 2016. She's the recipient of the English Department's Fiction Award and a member of Phi Beta Kappa Honor Society. She's a craft editor for The Pylon, a Blacksburg-based digital publication that specializes in investigative and long-form pieces, submission-based creative works, and informed commentaries. To read more about Laura and her comedy writing, check out her website at blogs.lt.vt.edu slash Laura Copan. Please enjoy her very funny story, Lilith the Bigfoot. Ugh, peeing in the woods is the least sexy thing I've ever done, the tall girl announced. Then you're obviously not doing it right, Daphne, said the other girl as she set up some tents. The boy, who looked like a very clean lumberjack, inhaled the mountain air, puffing out his chest. I got a good feeling about tonight, he said, curling a smile at Daphne. I'll build the fire. The boy looked around the campsite for some kindling. He spotted a log twice his size and attempted to heave it over his shoulder. He immediately crumpled under the weight of it and fell. He glanced around to see if anyone noticed. Luckily, he was in the clear. Daphne was checking for a phone signal, and the other girl was trying to secure the tents into the ground. The fourth in their company, a quiet boy sitting on a rock, caught his eye and smirked, and then re-immersed himself in a sci-fi book. The fake lumberjack dragged the enormous log over to the spot cleared for the fire, and it landed with a thud. He wiped the two measly beads of sweat from his brow and unfastened a fourth button on his checkered flannel shirt. I don't usually bother with humans, but this particular mixture of arrogance and insecurity, Victoria's secret love spell and ripe B.O., and baby beards and pimpliness was a hot mess I couldn't pass up. I gathered one more handful of red stem bent leaf moss and crept closer to examine the motley crew. Despite their awkward appearances, I sensed enlightenment from the girl by the tents and the kid with his nose in a book. Those other two, though, damn. They were doing the human race no favors. I considered revealing myself to them, 
but there is much human confusion regarding Bigfoot culture these days. We rarely allow humans to see us in our full form. It's simpler this way. Bigfoots are beings of higher frequency than humans, so we can disappear at will and effortlessly shift into other dimensions. Humans, catching only glimpses of us, tend to either be scared of us or determined to capture us. But I was only here for the moss. Back home in the seventh dimension, I run a modest yet successful holistic medicine shop. Redstem bentleaf moss sells like hotcakes and cures most rashes and skin irritations. There was a long period of time when I avoided Earth. I was Lilith in my earthly incarnation long ago, but after the little incident in the Garden of Eden, I was demoted from human to Bigfoot. Really, it was for the best. Being a Bigfoot was a sweet deal compared to being human. What with the Bigfoot ability to become invisible, and of course the perks of interdimensional travel and optional immortality. Ugh! These mosquitoes are killing me! I just got bitten on my forehead! Daphne whined, scratching vigorously at her skull. Taking pity on the pathetic girl, I threw a hunk of moss at Daphne's head. Claire! She snapped at the girl by the tents. What? Don't throw moss at me, you turd! Daphne shrieked as she picked bits of dirt out from her bra. Claire and I sighed in unison. The fake lumberjack was by Daphne's side in .2 seconds, offering to help remove the dirt. Not wanting to see this, Claire and the quiet boy went to go find some usable twigs for the fire. The fake lumberjack and Daphne took this opportunity to go at each other like Neanderthals who had just discovered the opposite sex, except with more drool. Neanderthals didn't have braces. They writhed and flailed, knocking over the tent and stepping on Jeremy's book, ripping off the cover. My curiosity turned to disgust. It was fucking Adam and Eve all over again. These two weren't full of that intolerable earnestness like those two suck-ups, but they were just as disgusting. I licked my index finger and held it out. There was a slight westward wind. Repositioning myself in the bushes, I let rip the most guttural, savage fart I could muster. A little-known talent of Bigfoot's is that we store bodily gases just below the skin and then release them for special occasions. The myth that Bigfoots are perpetually rank stems from the Bigfoot habit of releasing farts to repel humans, but we are, in fact, more sanitary than most primates. The sound hit them before the smell. The pubescent Homo sapiens screamed with terror, eyes and mouths wide open. I watched the stink waves strike. They gagged as their taste buds and nostrils soaked up the fumes. Tears attempted to purify their eyes to no avail. In his attempt to escape the smell, the boy, of course, tripped over the enormous log. I stifled a chuckle. Humans never fail to trip and fall when running from perceived danger. Daphne, not waiting for him, sprinted away at an otherworldly speed. But she dropped her phone and got down on all fours to search for it. Both struggled to get up and then fainted pitifully. Ten minutes later, Claire and the quiet boy returned to the campsite and stumbled upon the sprawling, unconscious bodies. Are they dead? Claire asked, hopefully. Let's find out, the quiet boy said, reaching for the water bottle in his backpack. The two heaps of human flesh sputtered to life as the water splashed their faces. Daphne started spouting off nonsense about a monster fart, and her boy toy babbled incoherently about how camping is overrated. The quiet boy and Claire exchanged a look that said, 
We should have left them comatose and walked away from the twitchy creatures. Staring blankly ahead, they noticed my face in the bushes. Just before vanishing, I winked at them. Last and certainly not least is Lisa Heidel's story called The Whaler. I'm a little nervous that I didn't do this story justice. The recording quality is slightly below average for us here at Secondhand Stories, but please don't hold that against Lisa or her story because this is a really good one. It deals with the unknown about ourselves that makes itself known in mysterious ways. Lisa Heidel writes flash, short, and long-form fiction, articles, and book reviews. Her work has appeared in MASH Stories, Sable Literary Journal, The Chattahoochee Review, First Line, and other literary journals. Her first collection of short stories, Inayed, will be released this year. Lisa Heidel's The Whaler When her abuelo died on her 11th birthday, Karina's gift found her. She would never know why she, a typical girl child, brown as a berry, Arms and legs neither long nor short, her hair the same black as those around her, brown eyes seeing what everyone else saw, was chosen to carry such a heavy weight. Over time, she would accept it was destined to be so. Her birthday dress rested at the foot of her bed, so it was the first thing she saw when waking. Her mama had threaded colorful children around the hem, and when she turned, 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 they danced with her. Later in the morning, her Aunt Nina hurried into the yard, carrying her youngest son, Pedro. Karina had only ever seen Pedro in Aunt Nina's arms, and she often wondered what ailed her cousin. She'd once overheard Aunt Luda, her mama's other sister, say, There's nothing wrong with the bambino that a few days away from suckling at Nina's tit couldn't fix. Aunt Nina, it's my birthday. Do you like my new dress? Karina asked, twirling. Her aunt went into the house without looking her way. Karina followed her inside. Her mama and Aunt Nita were crying and hugging, Pedro sandwiched between them. What's wrong, Mama? Karina asked. Come, sweet girl, she said, pulling her onto her lap. Something sad has happened. Your abuelo died this morning. Karina waited, unsure if there was more. Do you know what that means? Her mama asked. He went to heaven? Karina said, uncertain if she was right. Yes, he went to heaven. Karina closed her eyes as a wave of pain moved through her. It was her own pain at the loss of her grandfather, and her mama and Aunt Nina's hurt. It was the hurt she knew Aunt Luda would be feeling, and Uncle Nero. Karina opened her mouth and gave voice to it all. She wailed, her voice rising higher and higher until her body was empty. When she opened her eyes, she was on the floor, the front of her birthday dress wet with tears. Her head and throat ached. Her mama stood over her, eyes wide, hands tucked beneath her chin. Aunt Nina held Pedro's head tight, his left ear against her chest, her hand covering his right ear. No one spoke as Karina stood. My new dress is wrinkled, Mama. I'm sorry. Come, her mama said, as she pulled her close. Let's go see to your abuelo.
At the funeral, Karina let the other mourners' grief move through her, a wave of loss that started at the crown of her head and moved down to her feet and, like a fountain, flowed back through her over and over again. When it became too much, she opened her mouth wide and wailed her family's sorrow into the air for her abuelo to take with him. She knew in her heart that he heard. After all of the relatives had gone back to their homes and villages, Karina slept for two days, her mama waking her to eat, then rubbing her hair until she slipped back into a deep sleep. After the long rest, her mama explained the reason she felt the loss of her abuelo so strongly. You are a whaler. It is a gift. Do not let anyone say different. After her abuelo's funeral, word spread. Families brought dishes of rice and tamales under the pretext of showing their condolence to the family. Karina knew they were there to look at her. She felt like the two-headed calf she'd once seen at the Gonzales' farm. She listened, eyes on the ground, as her mama stroked her hair and told the visitors that Karina had been gifted from God. The visitors nodded and shared their memories of Paloma Ortega, the only other whaler from the village. They would say, Paloma Ortega came to my sister's, brother's, uncle's, mother's, father's funeral. Her wails could be heard villages away. I know in my heart my sister, brother, uncle, mother, father smiled in heaven when hearing how he grieved. The people would say, Karina is lucky to have such a gift. Karina had her doubts about whether her ability to feel the anguish of others was truly a gift, but she held her tongue and kept her eyes on the ground. On her twelfth birthday, a year to the day after her abuela's death, her mama woke her at dawn and told her to wear the dancing children dress. Where are we going? Karina asked, pulling at the two tight sleeves of the dress. For a visit. Now come. They walked through the village and then out of the village, past the orchards and through the meadows. The sun climbed high in the sky when they entered the woods. The shade was nice and dried the sweat on their skin. Her mama did not speak as they walked, just held tight to Karina's hand. When they entered the clearing, Karina saw the garden of flowers to the left of the small white house. Karina did not know the names. The knowing was not yet hers. That would take time and patience, long treks to faraway villages where she would collect seedlings and cuttings to plant in her own dirt the same dirt that would embrace her body 70 years later. But Karina had no knowledge of that, only that she recognized the beauty before her, and it recognized her. At the door, her mama hesitated. The look of doubt on her face frightened Karina. The only time she saw her mama hesitate was when speaking with Karina's papa when he came around after drinking. Before her mama could make up her mind to knock or turn them back toward the village and flee, a woman not much taller than a child opened the door. She had long white hair to her knees and wore a yellow dress with red roses around the hem. Paloma Ortega. Come, come, do not let the heat in. She ushered them inside. Welcome to my small home with my small table where I ate my small meals of corn tortilla, beans and rice, and my small chair by the window where I can see my lovely garden. Unsure of how to respond, Karina looked to her mama. Thank you for seeing us. This is Karina, my daughter. 
I don't have many visitors. Most people only come to bring word of death. Karina nodded in understanding, as if she foresaw her future and those who would arrive at her doorstep, torment in their hearts for the ones they lost. Make yourselves comfortable while I bring drinks. Karina sat in the chair overlooking Paloma's garden. Do not sit there, her mama whispered. That is Miss Ortega's chair. Leave the bambino, Paloma said as she came back into the room carrying a tray. It is the best seat in the house. You and I will take a walk in the garden after your mama and I talk. Karina looked out at the garden as she nibbled on maranitos and watched birds perch precariously on the thick stalks of sunflowers. She thrilled at the hummingbirds as they hovered over the eye of the flowers, their pointy beaks tap-tap-tapping until the flower gave them what they wanted. She was studying a large spider, spinning its web between an orange flower and a purple one, when her mama called her to the table. Miss Ortega is going to speak with you. Can we go to the garden? It beckons, Paloma said, as she pushed away from the table and gestured for Karina to help her stand. We must do as it asks. She and Paloma stepped into the heat and made their way to the garden. My own mama gave me two flowers I planted when I moved here. Everyone told me they would wither and die, but they dug in their roots and bloomed. An important lesson for us all. No matter where our feet land, we can always blossom. Paloma told Karina the names of the flowers, sharing where she'd gotten the seed or the cutting that flourished in her special garden. Karina repeated what she was told, word for word, so she would not forget. When they reached the end of the garden behind the house, a wooden bench waited beneath a large tree. And this is where I rest so I can have enough energy to get back inside. Karina sat next to her and watched the wind tease the leaves and flower petals. It was the first time she'd felt truly calm since her abuela died and her gift found her. It's my birthday, she whispered, more to herself than Paloma. You must take a flower with you before you leave. My birthday gift to you. Karina smiled at the old woman. Tell me. Paloma did not ask what she wanted to know. She knew Karina was ready to hear what being a whaler meant. How people would come to her when they could not express all the agony in their hearts, all the love they felt for the one who died. They would come when all they carried was anger and animosity and expect Karina to let the lost one know that underneath all the ugliness was a want to be loved, to be forgiven, to forgive. They'll expect you to know how much to share when you release the grief, Paloma said. This you will learn in time. I don't know if I can do it again, Karina said. It was the first time she'd admitted the fear that what she'd done was only a fluke. If not, it was not your path. What you must never do is be false. People will know. I've met many good actors in my time. They throw themselves on the ground, wrench at their hair, and cover the grave with their bodies, but there is no heart. The mourners leave their loved ones behind, carrying only emptiness. She gripped Karina's hand in hers. Our gift fills them up. It drains the hurt from their hearts and replaces it with the love they harbor deep within that they did not know how to share with the one who has gone. Understand? Karina nodded. 
They sat in silence and watched the shadows play. When the sun dropped below the tree line, they went to the garden, and Karina chose the flower she wanted to take home. It is a zinnia. It symbolizes our memory of absent friends. The petals are layered, like our memories, one on top of the other. Wonderful choice. Her mama offered to carry the flower as they walked back through the woods, but Karina said no. It was hers to carry. Two months after their visit to Paloma, Delia Arcada died during childbirth. Raul, her oldest brother, knocked on their door at dawn. Dark circles shadowed his eyes, and his lip twitched when he spoke. The Bambino still lives. He cried all night, like he knew. We will bury her tomorrow. Can she come? He asked, indicating Karina without looking directly at her. She would grow used to not being looked at, to people smiling at their feet when she was near. Her mama said yes, they would come, but could not make any promises, just as Paloma had instructed. Karina spent the day tending to her zinnia, ignoring the pressure building inside her chest. After a night of fitful sleep, she and her mama made their way to the gravesite. They heard the Bambino's cries before they saw the mourners. Karina felt the pressure building. She gripped her mama's hand tighter. When they were close enough to smell the damp soil of the open grave and see the torment on the face of Delia's husband, Karina opened her mouth and released the family sorrow into the air. Her mama told her, after she came back from the dark place she went, that Delia's baby stopped crying at the funeral and slept peacefully for the first time since birth. She visited Paloma each year on her birthday. Her mama took her until the year she turned 16. Then she walked alone, through the village, and then out of the village, past the orchards and through the meadows. The sun climbed high in the sky when she entered the woods. The shade felt nice and dried the sweat on her skin. When Karina turned 27 and went to visit the woman who had become her closest friend, she found Paloma had taken to her bed. Paloma took her hand, squeezed it hard, then closed her eyes and never reopened them. Karina spent the morning digging Paloma's grave at the edge of the garden. When she lowered the woman in, she did not wail. There was no need. On the day Karina was to leave the world behind, she went to her garden and thought about Miguel, who came to her door after his uncle's funeral two weeks before. I brought you this. He handed her a glossinia. It means love at first sight, he'd said, sweat dripping from his forehead onto the purple petals. They married when she was 19. Next to the glossinia, she planted the heliotrope, also a gift from Miguel. She found the plant waiting after returning from a funeral in a faraway village a year after their wedding day. The gift of the flowering plant was to tell her he'd been with another woman and would never do it again. Karina knew then that Miguel had learned to speak her language. When she reached the cyclamen, she paused. Her mother had given her the plant twelve years before, on the day before she died. It was how she said goodbye. She caressed the majestic petals of the lily she'd planted for the bambino she carried inside of her, felt move, then lost. Lying down next to the zinnia, 
She recalled all the graves she stood next to, all the pain she borrowed for a brief time, then released, because it was not her pain to carry. Life taught her it would bring joy and pain in equal measures. Her mother's gentle ministrations, balanced by her father's whiskey breath and harsh words. Miguel, her first and only love, the passion and heartache they shared. Paloma's understanding of the weight they both carried, something no one else could ever give her. When the good arrived, she had gathered as much as she could, wrapped her arms around it, knowing the pain of life was riding in Joy's wake, a necessary and demanding partner. Karina knew there would be no one to wail for her, no one to carry her loss deep inside, then send into the heavens. The sun hid behind the trees, and the stars opened their eyes for her one last time. Karina allowed herself to feel the fear of not knowing with certainty what came after life ends. She felt all the small hurts and disappointments of a long life. Then, with a breath in, she let the delight of all the beauty and love she experienced fill her. As the only life Karina had ever known left her, she opened her mouth wide. In the quiet of the night, flower petals fluttered up from deep inside her, whispered their secrets, and floated away on the wind. Special thanks, as always, to my co-producer, Colleen Stewart, and thanks to you for slowing down and listening up with us today. Don't forget to check out our website, secondhandpodcast.com. Follow us on social media for updates. Please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune back in two weeks from now, and we'll have more secondhand stories for you. Thanks for listening, and happy writing.